everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone. Wow, what a month. Since my last episode, I had to wrap up my university classes around New Year's and I got a bit busy grading. I thought I needed a little break and that it would be a sort of ho-hum sort of holidays. Instead, the underbelly of America's history reared its head for all to see right in the heart of Washington, D.C., I'm not sure what else there is to add that hasn't already been said over and over about white supremacy in all its forms. I'm still not sure what to think about Biden being president, but I can only hope for something better than the status quo set by the past white liberal ideas of a melting pot. And Martin Luther King's birthday just passed yesterday, the timing of which reminds us both how much and how little has changed. So we shall see. But for today, I have a really special guest, Marie Romalia, a choreographer, performer, teaching artist, and certified Gaga instructor. An adoptee born in South Korea and raised in Ohio, movement practice and performance has supported her in an ongoing process of self-discovery, liberation, connection, expression, healing, and care. Her collaborative performance works have been commissioned by Gibney Double Plus Festival and have been presented at venues such as American Dance Institution, Bad Bronx Academy of Art and Dance, Cleveland Public Theater, and many more. As I edited this episode, I realized Marie had a very calming effect on me as an interviewer, and we glide through many different topics, delving into Marie's experience as a South Korean adoptee, her meandering path towards movement as a means of expression, getting groovy with Gaga, and so much more. As always, stay safe and healthy wherever you are, both mentally and physically, and I hope you enjoy this. I'm always nervous about talking, but that's okay. Yeah. And continuing to work through the process. Oh, that's why you dance, right? <laughs> I was actually just talking to another dancer and she had said in the beginning she had been drawn to dance specifically because she didn't have to speak. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, somehow it feels easier sometimes and like less pressure, I think, to like speak through the body. Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, everything's a language, right? Right. So we all, we're all constantly trying to, you know, improve whatever kind of language that we are using and whatever sort of medium form that it takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Where, where, how are you doing in, in, in these days in times of COVID? Right. Yeah. I feel like for the first few whiles, it was, while it was devastating and hard, it was also nice to have just some spaciousness in my sense of time that there is something about it for me because I you know the last few maybe most of my life has been felt pretty 
just full and busy and mm. you know kind of trying to find this balance with like my dancing life and with other work and friends and family and for whatever reasons the year that I was in Florida there was just more spaciousness of time and that was something that felt good um no and it felt really nice to come back north actually I missed the beach and the warmth but yeah, I grew up like outside of Cleveland. And so I'm just, it feels familiar a little bit kind of culturally and being by the lake. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that ties into like sort of like what we were going to talk about anyway, sort of like you growing up um, and your background. I don't know if, because um, you, you were a Korean adoptee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Medina okay. in Ohio. And so yeah, I was adopted and came to the U.S. when I was about seven months old. And yeah, the suburb where I grew up was kind of a pretty conservative, kind of predominantly white area. Yeah, and I remember just having a lot of neighborhood friends there when I was younger. And then my brother was adopted from India, and he came to the U.S. when he was three months old. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know you had an adopted Indian brother. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times when we go out to places like for dinner or something with my parents, people often think we're a couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can totally I can totally yeah. see that. Yeah, but so my brother and I were pretty close when we were younger and like still now in our own way, like we're really different people in terms of like our personalities and our interests. Um, What does he do? Right now he's, um, he's currently not working, but he's worked as like a server and a DJ. Okay. Has he DJed for your pieces before? Is that something you want (laughs) to, is that too close? Yeah. I think our aesthetics are a little different and he's done more for um, like, weddings and things like that oh oh, okay okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's like journey and whatever kind of wedding songs (laughs) i mean was there a reason why your parents was so in like do you do you know why your parents were adopting yeah they um they had been trying to have their own children and weren't able to Mm. and then at the time I think the process was a little easier to adopt internationally. Hmm. And they also, I think we're interested in just connecting that way with, with children that were from different places. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was little, sometimes we would like go to social gatherings that yeah. were parents of adoptees, like transnational adoptees. Uh-huh. And that they, they were always really transparent with us about us being adopted and like yeah. kind of trying to introduce us to things about our countries of origin. I think for me that it was just hard to make the connection, like that I could understand what they were saying, but I think I didn't really connect the dots until much later <laughs> in my yeah. life. Um, did, you, did you remember when you had your first taste of Korean food? Um, and what was that like? That, I probably tried it when I was young Yeah. at one of the like social gatherings and I don't remember it, mm. but um, the next time I can remember is when I was in college. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. We weren't really like cooking it at home or anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> No, I asked because I, I heard I heard a I heard a podcast. They were talking about it was focusing on Korean adoptees and intertransnational adoptees, and saying how these families in America would try to you know get their kids somewhat acquainted to the culture that they came from. And one, it was a, it was a food podcast, and they were talking about how it was suggested that these kids, when they were finally had the taste of their food, that they there's a familiarity to it and they were sort of surmising that after having been in their mom's womb for nine nine months and having ingested that kind of food that even if you hadn't tasted it that your body has a certain um, familiarity to it because you grew up on it right mm-hmm. yeah no I definitely felt that when I when I had it in college yeah yeah and I went through like a long phase of making a lot of Korean food and going to a lot of Korean restaurants. And I befriended the Korean American community and the region where I was in Arizona and kind of learned a little bit about cooking with them. What are your, some of your favorite Korean foods? Oh my gosh. I may butcher some of the pronunciations. Kimchi, of course. And <laughs> what kind of kimchi? I really like like almost all of the ones that I've tried, but yeah. I guess the pretty like traditional cabbage kimchi yeah, and radish kimchi, cucumber kimchi. I love cucumber kimchi. Mm. So delicious. And um, naengmyeon. I love naengmyeon. Oh my gosh. I wish we could have some right now. Although my favorite noodle dish is kongguksu. Ooh. Mm. Especially on a very, very hot Korean summer and then having freshly made soybean sauce with the cold noodles and you have the small plate of salt and then you just slightly salt <laughs> it. Like I sought out lots of kongkuksu places when I was living in Seoul. And then when I moved to LA, I also like found, because LA is like 24, 7, 365 days a year, like warm weather. So it's not confined to the summer, right? So I could have I could have kongkuksu the year round as opposed to just the summer months. So Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into dance? When did you start dancing? Do you remember? Were you like always dancing to whatever music was around and your parents like, oh, she's got to be a dancer? Or? Um, well, the first time I remember wanting to dance is uh, when I was three, my mom took me to see the Nutcracker. So it was pretty. You remember that? Yeah. Like oh, I can wow. remember the carpeting in the theater and wow. the shoes that I wore and the like perfume smells and just the like kind of grandness of the stage. And mostly I remember the feeling that I just wanted to do what they were doing, I guess. Mm. Um, but all those memories are associated with it. But then my parents were Neil Diamond fans. And okay. so okay. they would play the album that had Coming to America on it. Okay. And I would dance to that song. <laughs> um but so then I, I started taking ballet lessons when I was about seven. I okay. Think. And I went to like a small studio in Medina and we took like ballet and jazz there. And um, when I was a teenager, they started pre-professional company. And so I joined the pre-professional company. And so it was like a more intensive. Like, it was like high school pre-professional. 
Yeah, it was like junior high and high school. Okay, all right. Yeah. And then kind of around that time, I just started getting more serious about it. And in the summers, I was able to go away and do like dance intensives where we would take all different kinds of dance. Yeah. And I totally loved it. And I think part of what I loved most about it was just meeting people from all over the place, like from different backgrounds and and that actually had different interests about dance because I think I was coming from this place of, oh, there's just ballet and sometimes there's jazz. (laughs) It just like totally expanded like the idea of being able to pursue different kinds of dance if you wanted to. Yeah. So that was super exciting. I think ballet was pretty central, like through my early twenties, but that I also, I really liked taking like African dance and one summer we got to do Brazilian dance and we would do like character dance and folk dance. I really loved. We got to do a yoga for dancers class, like Pilates and stuff like that. And a lot of jazz also. Yeah, I really liked everything. The hardest thing for me at that time though was doing improvisation, which has been an interesting turn of events, I think, because that's pretty much all I do now. How would you describe the dance you do now? Um, I guess most of the dance-related things I do now in terms of like making or teaching is sort of aimed at trying to embrace multiplicity mm. and multiplicity in our personalities and our expressions in our world and also kind of going through a process or inviting a process of like self-discovery and the potential of like transformation and liberation and healing. Yeah. Um, And so that a lot of what I feel like I'm kind of facilitating or hosting or participating in tend to be kind of guided through prompts that you can interpret in a lot of different ways that there's not like one way to respond to things. So there's often not like learning a phrase or instead of like, With ballet, there were so many kind of, like there was a really set routine and kind of prescriptive flow through a class. And you're like learning specific movements and trying to execute them in a specific way. Yeah. And the practices I feel like I engage with now are more about finding how movement feels good for you. Hmm. And that there isn't necessarily a right or a wrong way of doing something or expressing something. And at the same time that we can still, like if we're with like a cast of, in a rehearsal or if we're in a class together, we can still sense how we're kind of connecting through our response to whatever is being offered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that answer. I have like a lot of questions from that, but I'm going to go backwards a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just going to quickly go back. So you went to school in um, Prescott, Arizona. And what I was curious about is you got a BA in education for social change and cultural studies. And I was curious, what what is that? And then were you still dancing at that moment? Uh-huh. Um, Prescott College kind of um, had a radical approach to education. And so mm-hmm. it was very self-directed and we could kind of create our own majors. We didn't have to have letter grades. Like we would have like written self-evaluations and evaluations from our instructors. And so while I was there, like the education 
part of my degree, I was studying a lot of kind of like experiential and alternative methods of education, like Mm -hmm. um, the multiple intelligence theory. And so I worked a little bit with a charter school that was there. So you were planning to be a teacher? I don't know that I had a plan. It kind of felt like a possibility. (laughs) And yeah that I had um, actually quit dancing. Like after high oh. school, um, I apprenticed with a couple different ballet companies and then figured out maybe that wasn't the best fit hmm. and was sort of lost for a while and had kind of an identity crisis. <laughs> this is in, co- in college. So yeah, it was like two years out of high school, I did the ballet companies thing and then I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And so I moved back to Ohio for a little while And I was working at a Mexican restaurant and going to community college, taking kind of like general education courses. Mm -hmm. And then um, ended up doing an outdoor semester program through a school in Colorado before I went to Prescott. And then I went to Prescott. Uh But anyway, I think my mom had kind of suggested, oh, maybe you could, you know, get a certificate in education. And then that's something you could do because I really didn't know what I wanted Yeah. But I did get pretty interested in like different philosophies of education. And yeah, I studied a, a bit about like Waldorf education and like various kind of learning theories. Yeah. And I think also because I had such a hard time in school, especially like junior high and high school. And so it was just super exciting to encounter like, wow, there's other ways. And <laughs> 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 And that Prescott itself was such a different model for education because it was like, you know, like self-motivated and like you're learning for learning's sake. Yeah, yeah. I really loved, we had like a block quarter system. So a one month kind of intensive study in one course. Uh And then during the quarter, you would have like regular, like take like three or four classes or something. Mm. And then with the kind of cultural studies aspect of things, when I was there, a close friend of mine, and this is actually how I started becoming interested in like my Korean heritage. A friend of mine was like, do you ever think about going back to Korea? Or do you wonder about your birth family or what it would have been like if you had grown up there? I was like, I guess I don't really. Huh. Um, but then I was like, wow, I, now I do. Um, After that question. Yeah. And so I like connected with the Korean American community in that region and started doing some like beginner like language classes. And I ended up traveling to South Korea and doing independent studies there. For how long? I was there for a summer. Oh, okay. And you, where, where were you? I was staying in, I stayed in two different rural farming villages. Okay. It was kind of like an exchange program. And so I was teaching English and also kind of like trying to take like traditional dance classes and spending time with the community. And so while I was there, I was doing some independent studies and like writing and teaching. And I just was really curious, like how it, how it may have felt if I had grown up there Hmm. or how things would have been different and yeah, it was it was so meaningful in ways that are still difficult to find words for. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it takes a long time and maybe a lifetime to process all of that. You know, <laughs> like I remember 
one of the classes that I taught was in a small city outside of the village. And um, the first time we went, like we were walking down the street and I just remember like a crowd of people walking towards me that looked kind of similar to me. And it was yeah. so disorienting. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know where I am. I don't know what's happening. And I was like <laughs> laughing and crying at the same time. Oh, wow. And it felt like really affirming <laughs> in some way. Like, yeah. And then kind of similarly, I was taking some traditional Korean dance classes while I was there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like the movement there is very much based on like the breath mm-hmm. and something about that really resonated with me. And I just, like, I felt like I could feel it in my cells, like the connection from mm. some other time or something. Yeah. And just, um, yeah, it was like laughing and crying at the same time. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, there were just so many moments kind of like that, like making connections and not exactly knowing from what or where. Yeah. Or why. Yeah. Um, but that, I feel like it just brought to consciousness, like kind of this other aspect of myself that's such a big part of me and also had been such a small part of my, like the way that I conceived of myself before that. Yeah. Yeah. And did you end up connecting with your biological family or? No, I didn't. I, um, I sort of felt mixed about it that Mm. it, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to. And I also felt yeah. a little like I didn't really know what the circumstance was or maybe if that came to pass. Yeah. I feel like if it, yeah, I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah. I was just, I was just curious. Yeah. Cause you went to Korea. So I didn't know if that was also some, I assumed that was on somehow in the back of your mind. Cause it would be online if, if that, if that somehow yeah. came to pass yeah. for me. <laughs> No, I, um, before I went, I had written to the adoption agency, asked kind of about if they had any information and they had written a letter to me and kind of the story that they had documented was that my birth father had passed away a month before I was born. My birth mother already had two children and that she just couldn't afford to be a single mother and have a third child. And so I'm actually... A younger sibling there. So you have two but, older brother and sister, and or sister. I'm not sure what, mm-hmm. That's, which is crazy. Yeah. Well, and they also said that the seven months that I stayed there before coming to the U.S. that I lived with a foster mother. Yeah. And I actually felt more inclined to try to connect with her. And I guess I was partially thinking or feeling the reason I may not want to, I don't know, try to push something to meet my birth family so I just didn't know what kind of emotions it would bring up for them Uh, also for me but yeah but I would be open to it if it if things conspired yeah if an opportunity presented itself Mm -hmm. so you did this during while you were in in college in Arizona or right after during college and kind of all of the independent studies that I was doing sort of culminated in my senior project there and then and then how did you get back into dance well while I was at Prescott College I started taking some dance classes okay and uh, my professors there are amazing amazing women and kind of the focus 
with their classes was more about finding your own dance and kind of healing through movement and more improvisational work. And so at first it was really hard for me and I was kind of resistant to it. And they were so kind and so generous and so caring. Like the first class I had uh, with my professor, Delisa, she was just having the class go around and talk about like, I think what it was dance for us or why were we there? And um, Maya came around to me and I just started crying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> basically, I, I I did a lot of crying during my undergrad. <laughs> wow. Um, was but, what do you where did that crying come from? Was it like um, you didn't have the words for it? Was that what happened or what? Yeah, I think it was probably in part I didn't have some words for it, and also um, what Delisa so kindly offered. Like I was trying to talk about how I had like done ballet forever and then I quit. And so I think it had been about two years mm. I hadn't when I came back. Yeah. She was like, do you feel like you're returning something to something that means a lot to you? I like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I felt like it was something I needed and also something I was kind of afraid of, mm. but it was co- totally amazing. Like, the like it just sent me in such a new direction and opened up such new possibilities again like for what dance could be and like who could dance and then a lot of the classes like that we had like anybody could take the classes you didn't have to have previous experience Mm. and um they just held the space in such a beautiful way like for all kinds of moving bodies and all ages and Lisa like did a lot of community dance projects and the one thing that really was like just a huge turning point in my like interest in dance was that there was a couple in the community who they were visual artists and it was going to be their 50th wedding anniversary and they asked Delisa to help choreograph a piece that they could perform to celebrate their 50th anniversary together Mm -hmm. neither of them had ever danced before they were 70 years old wow and they performed this duet and it was in the the chapel on our campus which was kind of like an intimate small warm space that was upstairs and you could open the windows so it was like desert air coming in and it was totally packed like everyone in the community came to see this dance and like at the end the entire audience was crying and i had never seen I don't think I'd ever seen dance like that before. And it wasn't, Mm. they weren't doing like. Like crazy, crazy movements. Yeah. Yeah. But it was so specific to them. Yeah. And connected and like intentional Mm. and like present. Yeah. And I feel like, and I just felt so moved. Like, I don't think I had been moved by a dance like that ever in my life before that. Like I had really loved a lot of things, but it was so different. It was a visceral, primal reaction. Mm. Yeah, so I feel like it was kind of like, I want to make dances like that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. it's good to have those kind of anchor or centering sort of points, right? Even though those can shift, it's nice to have some sort of arrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, so 
at that point, is that when you decided to go back to school for dance and get, you got your MFA? Um, no, I, <laughs> after that, I, um, was still a little unsure what I was doing mm-hmm. and I ended up in a roundabout kind of way doing the teach for America program. Oh, really? Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I taught third grade in San Francisco. Wow. How was that? Um, it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was amazing to like be with the students it was also incredibly hard for like so many reasons, just yeah. the kind of structure and dealing with like such glaring inequities within mm-hmm. the schools. But it was, it was an incredible experience and also really hard. Um, and you did that for how many years? I did that for one year. Oh, okay. Um, it's usually a two year commitment. Yeah. But in San Francisco that um, they had like budget, issues at the end of the first year and so Mm. because we weren't really exactly part of like the system in the same way we were Mm. we were the first folks to be laid off yeah but i also had like family things that were going on and ended up moving back to ohio for a while again so but while i was there i twice a week i would go and take dance classes oh nice and so i feel like and those experiences like stayed with me when I went back to Ohio and mm. when I went back to Ohio was when I started working with some dance companies in Cleveland. So you, at that point when you're in Cleveland and working for those dance companies, you were helping putting on shows. What was your role in those dance companies? At that time I was mostly working as a performer. So some of the performances we did were improvised. Some of them were choreographed and that's when I kind of like, Three years into working with those companies, I started to just choreograph small, short pieces. And then eventually, it's kind of what led me back to school for dance. Yeah, because while I was there, I was I was working in the emergency room. And then, like, kind of during the days and then in the evenings, we had rehearsals. I think I was there for almost five years doing that. And Cleveland had this has this amazing organization called Dance Cleveland, and so they um, hosted a lot of free like master classes and performances. So I went to a lot of those and kind of talked to some of the artists that were touring through, and all of them were talking about how they went to grad school. I was like, "You go to grad school for dance? <laughs> um, <laughs> like maybe I should look into this." <laughs> And that for me, kind of deciding to go was so that I could just have time to like train and experiment with Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. I feel like I didn't have a good sense of what it really meant to be in graduate school in academia. In dance. At a research one institution. Yeah. Um, I quickly started to learn. <laughs> and so did you ever, how was your experience getting a master's in dance and choreography and performance? It was amazing. Yeah, I feel like... I feel so grateful for like the people that I got to meet and work with and for the time, like the time to just be focused on making and taking class. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also, or at least the way that I was approaching it, was very busy and overwhelming and <laughs> tiring. <laughs> and I feel like it's something that, it was already a part of my life in a certain kind of way and then kind of carried through working as a, a freelance dance artist 
I mean, it's something I'm always trying to figure out, like kind of the, the balance of things. And yeah, that I kind of go through phases of working really hard and then getting a little burnt out. Yeah. <laughs> I think Which that's... is not uncommon. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I feel like one of the great things about grad school is how it brings all these people together, like from different places, different backgrounds with different ideas and that you're just kind of concentrated in this little bubble for a little while. That's mm. also where I think I started learning about how to write grants and applications. Yeah, that's where I learned too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of hours spent at the uh, writing center, learning how to write and having things being corrected. Yeah, it's a useful skill. <laughs> yeah. So then, after grad school, what happened? Um, my partner and I moved to Pittsburgh. Oh, you met. Yeah. Oh, you met your partner in Ohio. We actually met through the Teach for America program. Oh, okay, in, San Francisco. Uh, when we were doing the training in New York. Oh, okay, all right. And then he went to LA, and I went to San Francisco. Uh, two rival cities. <laughs> so we moved to Pittsburgh for his work, and then soon after we moved there, I learned that. They were starting the first Gaga teacher training program in Israel. And um, so... Do you want to quickly describe Gaga? Yes. So Gaga is a training method that was started by Ohad Narin, uh, who's based in Tel Aviv, Israel. And it's like a training method that is geared towards both like professional dancers and dancers in training and also people who have never formally taken dance. And kind of along similar lines of a lot of the improvisational practices that I've engaged with. It's really about kind of responding to verbal prompts and moving in ways that feel good for you mm-hmm. and kind of accessing more possibilities through your movement, finding connections, like being able to like connect with your, your own experience and also stay connected with what's happening around you. And that it's also like a tool, a vocabulary that can be used in coaching, like choreography hmm. and things like that. But I also find that there's a lot of like language that's worked for me as kind of like modern day mantras in my everyday life. Mm. Um, from Gaga. From Gaga. Okay. Like things like connecting to a sense of plenty of time and like connecting to a sense of floating in the body and just being able to like sense the life traveling in you even if you're like sitting at a computer or cooking dinner or just being able to feel that there's movement inside of you even if you're not yeah moving dancing moving yeah doing extravagant movements yes and so i I had actually first encountered that on accident when i was doing a performance project that was in israel in like 2005, I think, like the place where we were rehearsing, Ohad was there for the school to do a master class. And so our friends who were going to the school there, they were like, you have to come to this class. It's amazing artist. It's incredible new like training method. And they were like, oh my gosh, we're so tired. We can't (laughs) do it. It's so hot. Um, (laughs) We almost didn't go. And I was like, my life would not be the same. Um, so we ended up going to the class and 
like as soon as it started, I just felt like, what is this? I have a new body. How do I feel all these things? Um, what, what, what do you think was it that made you instantly react that way to this specific trading method? Cause you talked about all the things that it's supposed to do, but how did you get so quickly attuned to it before you even knew all the vocabulary and ways of <laughs> working and thinking and the, I guess the language that it talks about? I think it was something about the kind of invitation. Like, I think the first thing he said in that class was get groovy and it was like so um somehow so clear and so open-ended that there's something about that that I could just like allow myself to try things and do things um and that he also was talking about like connecting to a sense of pleasure in all your movement Mm. which like I always I think I always would kind of like connect to something like that and maybe I wouldn't consciously think about it like while I was dancing, but that also in other kinds of dancing, there's a lot of like, sometimes depending who you're working with, like expectation of like muscling through or mm. moving through pain or something. Yeah. And this was like such a different idea because at the time I had also been recently diagnosed with a back injury, like a chronic back injury. And so I was still finding new ways kind of into moving. And mm. so it was also like, how do you work with your injuries or your weaknesses yeah. and not see them as like something that's going to hold you back, that it's like something you can move with. It just may look and feel different. Yeah. So you discovered that. And then when you were back in Pittsburgh, you started actually getting trained to be a Gaga instructor, right? Yeah. They, like we had to apply to the program then the training was in Israel. It was a nine-month program. Oh, wow. Okay. And so we worked. We had like three months on and one month off because of the visa hmm. situation. And so we would have like daily classes and Gaga, and we would learn some of the repertory. And we took a class called Gaga Methodics, which was kind of just going more in depth with one or two ideas. Hmm. We would do improvisation sometimes. And then in the later semesters, we started teaching each other and then teaching the community a little bit. And um, so then you became a Gaga instructor and then you went back to Pittsburgh. And what happened then? And then um, I was really fortunate to connect with incredible people there through their thriving arts community. (laughs) Yeah, I feel I have to credit Pearl Arts and Stacy and Herman Pearl. They just started their Pearl, like Pearl Arts. Pearl Arts Dance Studio. Yeah. And it was the first year they were doing the residency. Oh, you were the first resident, one of the first residents? I think so. Oh, wow. I I interviewed Stacy in an earlier episode. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I felt so lucky. And it was like a three month residency. And then we did a showing in February. It was with another artist who also shared a new work. Her name was Beth Radis. And so I was collaborating with my friend who I met in the Gaga teacher training program. And she lives in Tegu in South Korea. Okay. And so like the first two months of our (laughs) rehearsals, we were doing like Skype and video exchange. And then she came for the last month of the residency and stayed in Pittsburgh. And then we did a shot. And I, I met like almost all the people who I know from Pittsburgh 
through that residency and that showing. Oh, wow. Um, That's interesting that you connected with the Korean woman from Daegu, uh, <laughs> from, the, from the Gaga training in Israel. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. She's like one of my soul sisters. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and for our project, because while we were in Israel, we talked a bit about, you know, our experiences being Asian and in various places. And, yeah. Um, sometimes being in Tel Aviv, like we just would stand out a lot. <laughs> and so we, we were kind of sharing about our different experiences about things like that. And kind of also one time she said, you have the Han. What do you mean? She's like, it's, you know, it's this Korean cultural term for this. Every, some people believe every Korean person is born with this, this kind of soulful mm-hmm. sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she was like, I have the Han, but you also have the Han. <laughs> and <laughs> I definitely feel like there's truth in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that there's also this like persistence and like moving forward. Yeah. We, we also talked a lot about food because we both really like eating. <laughs> but yeah, she and I spent a lot of time together there. And we've worked on a few different projects together since then. So have, how have your pieces or have they incorporated those kind of shared experiences in terms of, I guess, your relationship to being a Korean American or a Korean adoptee? I mean, because you were drawn to this woman from Daegu and I assume somehow that language gets incorporated into this nonverbal mm-hmm. form. But also I know you, you, you have a lot of music and you have a lot of these, um, ins- I would say, installation-y uh, setups that that allow also for this this language to expand. I think just beyond beyond simply just dance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel like in my collaborations with Hyun that that kind of information is present in our conversations and also in abstracted ways inside of whatever our performances. And I guess I kind of feel like for me, it's it's just always there. Yeah, like whether I'm directly addressing it or not and it's something I've been thinking about in recent years is like do I need to be and can I be or how can I be more explicit about that do you feel pressure to sometimes Hmm. yeah by 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 yourself or by others or both (laughs) maybe both okay yeah and maybe it comes a little bit from this place of like having worked with other artists who are more explicit or very explicit about kind of their intent and messaging and that there's, I feel like there's a power in that Mm -hmm. and a way of like conveying information and inviting people in that maybe feels more clear and accessible. And I guess because, because of the, (laughs) how my work tends to look. um, How would you describe that? (laughs) Um, I guess I would start by saying each work is slightly different depending on who is participating Mm, mm -hmm. and that there are people who are involved like from various experience levels and backgrounds. And so the actual like movement vocabulary isn't always what people is expecting that Mm. it can like range from pedestrian to absurd. Yeah. Like sometimes includes more like reference to balletic or contemporary yeah. forms. But um, 
I mean, when I looked at a version of your letter compiled from all letters, I didn't, I didn't see the uh, the final version of it, but I saw, I think, uh, but I saw a version of it that wasn't complete, and I've also seen like um, video excerpts of your other pieces. The thing that I was struck by is sort of the breadth of your styles, you know, mm-hmm. and um, they all seem to have a very, very different feel. I mean, I, I feel like there's a certain Marie energy to it, the sort of silliness. I, I mean, not I don't know how to call you silly, but I, like there's a certain youth, youthful, um, playful quality to all of them. That was sort of what struck me in terms of the um, your energy, your your pathos. Yeah, I connect with that. Yeah, and I I agree too that like each work looks kind of different depending on who's in the room, and like because we're all contributing like through movement and through like the different elements we're incorporating. It's sort of reflective of whoever is there. Yeah. And then I think you're right that (laughs) there is like a, I like to use playfulness a lot in the creative process, kind of as a way of building connections and connecting with ourselves and that it tends to show up in the work also. And that I feel like if, there is a way that offers another entry point and maybe I use it kind of subconsciously, but also as a way to, I don't know, something that resonates with me is using humor. <laughs> oh, humor's powerful. I think, pe- I think people sometimes forget about humor or the power of humor. I mean, like I think, and, and you know, I think you were talking about this pressure to be more explicit and yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot and I, there, I always think about this, there are uh, different ways to uh, different strategies, right? And I think if you are more explicit, the piece changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you were talking about earlier when I asked you about how would you describe, you know, your dance, the type of dance, and you're talking about like this sort of uh, having these multiplicity of meanings um, and this this idea that there's no right way to do things, right? And I think there's there's a value to that and then as soon as you do get more explicit you kind of you gain some things and you lose some things right so true yeah well and i think that by kind of not naming things i'm kind of trying to leave space for people's interpretations like as witnesses and then i think it you know i kind of struggle with how to best invite people into having their own experience that there's not a specific takeaway yeah. um, or story. And then also like, is there like privilege entangled in that, that, you know, I would be able to think or like ask people to do that. And then like, what are you seeing and experiencing like without me saying things like directly about like the content that we may have been exploring. Yeah. And that sometimes it's lost or not evident for some people. What, 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 like the entire, you mean the entire thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like if there's like a, like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, like it, because that's definitely not what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of where the question for me comes of mm. like, how am I communicating or that, you know, people like sometimes will, oh, that was just weird. And I'm definitely not (laughs) going to be weird. I'm just trying to be myself (laughs) or inviting other people to be more of themselves. Yeah. But then I think maybe that's also interesting, like what we perceive as weird. Right. So, so I guess 
would you be willing to talk about what one of your pieces is trying to convey versus what what an instance of how it the audience was obs- either obscured to those facts or yeah hmm. or like yeah i mean it's sort of a broad question but I'm, we were talking about like these messages right and i mean to be honest i'm trying to think when i see some of your pieces you know what i take away more from it is sort of the the installations the uh, videos the the individual movements and i guess for me i don't the message is more definitely more obscured. I'm not thinking so much about the messages. I I I am attracted to the humor and uh I love the choreography and the movements that these small little moments of movements where you know the mm-hmm. dancers sink and then unsink and then sink. I really love those moments. Yeah. No, I think that is true that it's kind of through those things that maybe there's like information and maybe it's that it it can't come through in a way that's articulated in words. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess that's maybe the issue. <laughs> well, it's, not, it's not an issue. It's just, uh, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's an issue. <laughs> well, I guess that because I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily deliver one specific message mm, or like mm. many specific messages, like through these different sections that it's all kind of like, I feel like it's, it's just there. Like, is it is it a feeling? Would you describe the message as a feeling? Maybe sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it's like sometimes it's like a question that's being offered or a perspective. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to like with the letters project, yeah, it was the first time I had been working with video projection, which I had been a little resistant to using like in live performance. And so like that felt like a whole nother world for me. And um, that there were so many moving pieces. Once we started using like objects in the set, then we were working with like a sound score. And that that process, it was really awesome to have so much time. Like I think we worked on that piece for a year and a half, you know, with kind of through intensive work periods and residencies and to kind of feel the evolution of it and just how dramatically it shifted from the first one to the premiere mm. uh, felt really exciting to me. And that a lot of that was kind of in response to what happened in these different iterations. Yeah. That kind of at first, I think, because we had invited people to write us letters and people wrote about like just such poignant, beautiful things and sometimes silly things. And we really wanted to kind of like honor like the meaningfulness of the letters. And so I feel like in the first iteration, it felt a little more like explicit and like literal in our interpretations of things. And we were actually like reading some excerpts from the letters Yeah, and um, that there were more direct connections between like the kind of questions we were asking about connection and communication in a digital age. And mm. how is that different from physically snail writing? mail? Yeah. Um, and then we kind of took a, a huge departure from that. And we, because we want to just like open up some of the possibilities. And while we were in residency at Pearl Art Studios, we were using some of the objects in the space mm. and kind of experimenting with how they could create smaller spaces and kind of be able to create these intimate moments the way that, I don't know, letters feel intimate, but that it had such a different feeling and was way more abstracted yeah and i think that like some audience 
had a hard time like connecting, like, what does this have to do with the questions that you're asking? Um, and then also, it, you know, it was like a work in progress showing. So yeah, yeah, it was really a lot of kind of experiments that we had strung together that I felt like for the premiere, we were kind of able to find something in between all of that. Yeah. Um, that felt a little more cohesive and like kind of with the, like the connection between the projections and like we were in the projections doing yeah. things that we had been doing on stage, but yeah. the way that Gigi did it, I feel like, well, for me anyway, like kind of connected this idea of who are we like virtually and who are we actually and the virtual is actual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just the ways that, it was still kind of abstracted, but felt really tangible to me the way that the set designer, Natalia Gomez, um, that created these like weighted wooden structures that kind of reflected. Um, She's the one who did all the, uh, the wooded two by four structures, right? Yeah. 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 I also, I also interviewed her earlier. Aww. I mean, I think, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's always the, the, the eternal argument over like, you know, opacity versus transparency. Right. And, um, I've been like the past few years, I've been sort of really interested in, um, reading a lot of poetry cause I don't understand it. And then I remember like trying, you know, when I, for a long time I, I was interested in it, but I never fully, I guess, investigated it too much. And then I started trying to read like a poem pretty consistently on a weekly basis and and then I eventually met a, a poet who she was doing her master's in poetry and then it was at a residency and then she was commenting like how like some some people would go up to her and be like, I don't get poetry. And then she she said like my response is always like, Well, I don't get it either, but that's okay. <laughs> I love that. You know, and I think like there's this sense that you have to get something, right? And mm. especially in the arts, which is a lot of artists and I use art in sort of like the umbrella term or anyone doing a sort of a creative activity is a lot of times people choose in these forms of communication as an alternative to language. Right. And so to get it, you know, to try to force language into something that potentially doesn't have the words for doesn't always make sense, you know? And it also like, for me, like reading poetry has a lot, has sort of forced me to sort of just, accept things and listen and accept things for what they are, not trying to rationalize it too much, you know? I mean, the other, and the other argument is like, well, this leads to a lot of like bullshitting in, in, in creative activities. But, you know, I think, I think that, you know, I think they, they coexist in, in a sort of um, constant push and pull that, you know, I'd rather that push and pull exist than having, you know, everything have an answer. Right. So true. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you doing now? What are you, do you have anything in the works? How are things in Wisconsin? Mm. Um, I've been doing a lot of teaching on Zoom. <laughs> how's, how's, how's teaching on Zoom for dance working out? It has its ups and downs. Yeah. Um, yeah, like there's some ways that I'm really surprised at how much we can do. And um, it's incredible to me that we have this tool to be able to still practice and still make and be with each other. I know that it's not 
the ideal or what we want. <laughs> but it's what we got. Yeah. What is the structure of teaching dance on Zoom? Right now, I'm doing some teaching through the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so I teach um, a couple of technique classes and I'm teaching a repertory class. Okay. So we're making a dance for that class. In the technique classes, I'm kind of drawing from a lot of the like dance and theater improvisational practices and from Gaga. And we do a fair amount of like checking in and talking. And um, because of like the nature of the things that I'm teaching, we're able to sort of use a similar structure as mm. if we were in the studio. And so I'm kind of verbally guiding mm-hmm. and people are responding and Sometimes we do like dancing with a partner, like you pin a partner and have a dance with them. Oh, uh, um, okay. Yeah. Or we use breakout rooms and you yeah, work yeah. with a small group. Yeah, yeah. And we try to we try to have a, a good balance of like playful and I guess more kind of grounded activities. Yeah. And then it seems like kind of the feedback I'm getting is that it's nice to be able to like kind of cycle through things yeah. versus like long durational activities. <laughs> it's interesting because those classes, some students are working in the studio and some students are at home. Yeah. And I've been remote the last couple, last couple weeks. And so it's just like constantly trying to just be responsive and yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in the last few months, I definitely, I just haven't um, had the impulse to like start a big choreographic project. Yeah. I do feel like it's bubbling. I did, before I left Florida, purchased a microphone and a speaker <laughs> because okay. I've been wanting to start talking and like finding different ways to access my voice and like practice being explicit just through talking and talking about things that feel important to me or talking about or figuring out what's important to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think because I feel like the engine of using my voice is not as strong as the engine of using my body. It's just something I want to strengthen or find or in new ways. Do screaming, screaming exercises. Yes. <laughs> sustain, sustain screaming. <laughs> Feels appropriate. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but I do want to like kind of just play with experiments with the microphone. Yeah. And speaking and kind of see where it goes. And the, the last couple of years I've been feeling like I want to do a solo work, but then I always want to be with people. So mm. I don't do a solo. <laughs> Um, it's funny as, as I keep getting more and more older as an artist, I'm like appreciating these prompts we set for ourselves. I remember when I was younger, I was like, these prompts are dumb. Like these, you know, you know what I mean? Like you read about it, right. You know, you pick up like any book that's like basic book, like how to be creative. And then these books would have like these prompts and you read them and you're like, professional artists don't do this. This is like for like. These, these these exercises for people who, who uh, need help being creative. But then as I get older, I'm like, oh, like creative artists do have these prompts for themselves that seem nonsensical. Like I I create prompts for myself that are specifically challenging that, uh, that I never <laughs> expected that I do. 
Yeah, I like I like having jumping off points. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess something that is just coming up about like in terms of making and I guess a question that I've been like sitting with the last few months is like what feels meaningful right now. Yeah. Not that making doesn't feel meaningful, but I just I don't know why I don't feel like I have a ton of energy for it at the moment. And I still feel a desire to do it, but all the other things seem to take precedence right now. And then I also feel like even teaching feels like a part of kind of like my artistic practice. It's yeah. I I find teaching important. Especially especially if you can line up the teaching with the thing that you're doing. Because <laughs> for me I use it as research. Mm. You know, I think of it as research, right? Like I have to explain I mean, especially especially when I'm teaching video art classes, I've like I have to explain video art. I have to like I'll, I'll show my students like past video art works by other artists, and then I'll rewatch it with them, which is also like you know I I then rediscover like or rethink about what what a piece is doing, and I also see students their own work and their their own development and what is what I think is working, what isn't working, and also how they're discovering. I, I I'm still always forever like discovering mm-hmm. new things through my students I feel totally yeah I totally feel that and then I feel like so much of it like with movement practice is also learning like how to be together like mm. and because there's like you have to be like negotiating space and time and yeah different ways of approaching things that I feel like it's not like for me that it's not just practice for like dancing and performing but also for life in general yeah and that feels that feels meaningful and like there's a part of me too that you know I have moments that I'm like how how have I not quit doing everything and I'm just not in the streets like fighting like you know um and I don't really I don't have an answer but it's a question yeah <laughs> yeah is there anything else you want to talk about? No, that I guess what I would, the one thing I would add to what I just said is that I do feel like these kinds of practices and like making, teaching, art, that they are ways of fighting against and resisting the powers that be. Resisting the powers that be, yeah. 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 Well, there's, there's different forms of resistance, right? And Yeah. There's, they're supposed to all work sort of on different levels and in conjunction with each other on some level. Mm-hmm. Like go vote. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did you vote yet? No, not yet. Okay. Are you, are you, are you what's your license in Wisconsin? Did you switch mm-hmm. it? Okay. That's yeah. important. Well, but, well, Pittsburgh or Wisconsin, either one. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for talking with me. I'm glad we were able to do this again. Yeah, for the for the listeners, like, this is our second time talking. But the first time, I think I just started recording. And then also, we were under a time limit. And so I think, like, we both felt pressured. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to, I, yeah, I wasn't satisfied with it. And I wanted to, like, I felt like we both could have, we needed more time to be able to talk and I thought you had a lot of things to say. Mm. 
that would be able to, we would be able to talk over a longer form. Yeah. No, thank you so much for reaching out again. It was so nice talking with you. Hopefully. I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I really appreciate your, like, I don't know, you have a very generous way of asking. Do I? Gentle and generous. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've been told calming to a point of uh, putting someone to sleep. That's what, that's what I want. <laughs> I have a listener who she she told me she she explicitly told me like I listen to your podcast to go to sleep because your voice puts me to sleep, and I still have I still haven't figured out if that's like a good or bad thing for my podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure everyone responds differently. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, different, <laughs> different, different, different ways, right, of communicating. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Marie. Yeah, thank you so much. So nice to see you. Hopefully we can see each other soon in some some future where traveling exists again. Yes. <laughs> All right. Bye, Marie. Take care. Take care. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.